Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to have Catherine Fagg join me. Catherine, lovely to have you here. Likewise, Melissa, good to be here. Thank you. So Catherine, I'm going to jump straight in with a bio um, and keep it reasonably brief and then yep. we'll jump into our conversation. So Catherine's an experienced chair and board member and has worked in senior executive roles across a range of industries from resources to manufacturing and logistics, as well as banking and professional services. Catherine's the chair of Borrell Limited, the deputy chair of CSIRO, and is on the board of listed companies, National Australia Bank, Jerrywara Investments, and in the non-for-profit sector, Catherine's Chair of the Breast Cancer Network Australia, inaugural Chair of Water Trust Australia, a board member of the Grattan Institute, the Maya Foundation, and the Champion of Change Coalition. Catherine was a member of the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia, and was also a former president of Chief Executive Women. Catherine was made an officer of the Order of Australia, in June 2019 for distinguished services to business and finance, to central banking, logistics, manufacturing sectors, and to women. Now, I tried to keep that brief, Catherine, but there's so, so much there um, that, that it's hard. What an extraordinary career you continue to have. Um, can I cut straight to the chase and just say, um, why have you been so successful? It's such an interesting question, Melissa, because I think a lot of us think about looking in the mirror and go, actually, I have had a pretty interesting career, but it's not really obvious why I've necessarily had the opportunities I've had. But if I do think about it, um, some, you know, I think there are a number of things, both that, that sort of provided the foundations. And um, in my case, I was academically bright at school and was um, probably made the courageous choice when I was leaving school at 17 up in regional Queensland to do engineering mm -hmm. when very, very few girls did engineering. I think it was two or three percent of the class were, were girls. And subsequently, I was very fortunate to join some great companies early in my career, and that really provided robust foundations. So from university, I went to ESSO Australia, which is now ExxonMobil, being a petroleum engineer, and then I went to McKinsey, the management consultant, so really had a lovely foundation for my career. And then I made some really important choices and did some things in hindsight that were critical, which included when I left McKinsey, I joined ANZ Bank, which had been a client while I was at McKinsey. And I still laugh at this, thinking about myself at 32, having a conversation with the CEO of ANZ saying, oh, yes, I'd join, but I'd really like you to make me a line manager um, if in a couple of years, if this all works out, I was going into a project role and he looked kind of bemused by my request, said, oh yeah, we'll do that. I don't think really thinking it was ever going to play out, yeah. but it did. 
And so they offered me a line role when I was 34. And that, again, was really critical because I got that, uh, that really foundational P&L responsibility early on. And then I made other choices and I was very conscious of creating options for myself and probably being pretty comfortable taking on quite a lot of risk mm. in terms of um, career moves. So, Catherine, I want to go right back to the engineering choice. And yeah. I want to understand, um, you know, I've often heard and I, I spoke to Louise Adams, the CEO yeah. of, of Oricon last series, yeah. and she shared very much about there was a, a dream you know, there was a, there was a goal that sat behind her dream of sort of moving into engineering. Was there a dream that had inspired that move, or what? What sort of? Why did you choose it? You know, it even years later, it's still not a hundred percent clear to me why I did it. But um, there were a couple of things. Um, you can assume I was very good at maths and physics and science. Yeah, yeah. so I was. And I really love solving problems. I still love solving problems and like making a difference. So Louise talked about making a difference. Mine was generally um, wanting to make a difference. Something that I know that was really important is that even though my father wasn't an engineer or, or engineering connected, and nearly all the girls who did engineering when I did it, or I think nearly all the other girls had fathers who were engineers or engineering related fields. One of my best friend's fathers was an engineer. So I had exposure to it. And I lived in an industrial town, Gladstone. So I was familiar with engineers and the roles they played in the community, really leading roles in the community. But I laugh when I look back and think a lot of it was because I didn't want to do medicine. And when I went through high school, there was an assumption if you were bright, um, particularly in sciences, and you liked uh, people that you do medicine. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't want to do medicine, but at the time I didn't really know why. And sometimes you don't understand until years later. And I had the experience in that was revelatory for me, but it sounds so ridiculous now. When I was sort of in my mid-20s, we were going to friend, pick up a friend's partner who was working at a hospital as a trainee ophthalmologist. And we parked outside and I looked at the hospital. I thought, oh, I wouldn't want to be a doctor there, but boy, I'd like to run a hospital. <laughs> and it was the first time it had really struck me that actually I love sort of organisations. I love systems um, rather than being a single, you know, sort of a, a practitioner. Mm. Um, and But that was the first time that had ever occurred to me. And when I reflected on it, I thought, yeah, it's classic. I love systems thinking. I love organisations. And in fact, if you look at engineers, they tend to love systems mm. and system thinking. And um, I actually then did a master's degree in organisation behaviour. So that sort of put both systems thinking and people in organisations together. And that really then provided the foundation. It wasn't just the engineering. It was that mix of engineering and organisation behaviour. How did you know, and we will come to this in a bit more detail, um, because of, I think, your involvement with uh, Chief Executive Women and your involvement in the Senior Executive Census, which we'll yeah. talk about. But um, the question I wanted to ask you, um, uh, as I lose my train of thought as I'm thinking about it, I'm getting distracted by the fact that uh, we need your skills in healthcare because I've just read that report and seen the lack of uh, diversity in the healthcare yeah. space. So maybe you could go and run it. <laughs> 
Um, no, what I was going to ask you is how did you know, thinking of when you were 32 and you're sitting down with the CEO of ANZ, how did you know with such clarity that you wanted a PL role? It had been, perhaps it was through being at McKinsey, but it was really obvious that the people who got really senior roles came out of um, running big business units or divisions. And I was very conscious of wanting to create options for myself. That's something I really have done. Mm -hmm. I, when I'm thinking about an opportunity, I'll think, oh, well, what will that create more options for myself? And so I was really conscious of wanting to create options for myself. Um, I also knew I wanted to have ch children, a family. And so I was really keen to create those options before I started having a family. So it was just that awareness, I'm going to say, um, of thinking if I ever want to have the option of having a really senior role, having line experience is going to make a huge difference. So let's go there now. I think it's the obvious point to sort of move there in the conversation. Can you talk about the report that I think you were instrumental yeah. in the development of that? Um, yeah. Talk about the coming together of that report. And then I've got a couple of kind of key statistics out of the recent year's yeah. report that I'd love to throw in. Yeah, sure. And so the background to this is I had been very involved with Chief Executive Women um, for a number of years. I've been a member quite a long time and involved in the business engagement, thought leadership work there. And at the time, so this was, I'm going to say about five years ago, there was actually a lot of focus on women in boards. And I'm sure everyone knows that in the 30% club, and I've been involved in that through the... Um, through the education committee, but there was this, I'm going to say a sense of frustration that the really big challenge was how do we get more women into senior executive roles mm -hmm. and particularly into line roles, um, PL roles. And the work, um, and I, I became president of CEW, which is a great position to have a little bit more push and authority to get things done. So one of the things I really wanted to do was almost replicate the reporting that was happening on women in boards, mm. um, where there has been the 30% target. And the good news, of course, that's now been achieved for the ASX 200. And, but focus on uh, the senior executive team, and in particular, look at the percentage of women in perhaps the most influential roles in the senior executive team, which tend to be the people running business units um, division, so the PL roles, as well as the CFO role. And uh, the statistics are pretty compelling. If you look at where do people get um, come from when they're appointed to CEO roles, it's about 90% from between people who've been running um, business divisions and the CFO. And I think it's 70% from business divisions and the rest, other 20% is from CFOs. So, and we have a, a very small number of female CEOs in Australia in terms of running the ASX 200. And so a big part of the message is if we want to have more women CEOs, we absolutely need to get more women into CFO roles and actually running businesses. And I love how you've taken your sort of problem-solving junkie um, yeah. uh, love um, to that challenge. And, you know, when I, I look at the recent report from 2020, and I would urge anyone in the audience who hasn't seen this report, just go to the CEW website, find the report, download and have a look at it. I think it's fascinating. 
Um, it's really saying that there's been, so the report's been running since 2017. I think this is, last year was the fourth year, I think by memory. That, that would be about right anyway, yeah. So we've seen a slight decline in the last two years. Um, there's 10 female CEOs in the ASX 200. Um, I'm sure anyone can work that percentage out. Um, in the 50 appointments for CEOs over the last two years, three have been women. I'll do that percentage for people, 60%. Um, on the upside, um, we're seeing improvement in the number of females in CEO, CFO roles. We're seeing um, shift from 16 to 30 companies achieving gender balance. Um, some of the things that were interesting to me was there's been a big improvement in the industrial sector. I wondered if that might be because you were in it. Um, but we've seen um, a pretty negative movement in the healthcare space. So sitting at only 5%. Um, so hence, hence when you mentioned the hospital before, I suddenly yeah. and went, well, hang on a minute. I think there's an opportunity for you, um, should you wish to. I just, I'd love your reflection on some of that in terms of who's doing well, who isn't. Do we need more quotas? Like what, what's your perspective yeah. on this? Yeah. So I'm going to start by saying as someone who loves numbers and problem solving, um, often just showing the numbers can be a very big wake up call. Mm. And that's exactly what that first census was. Um, people were shocked. Mm. Um, many people were shocked at the percentage of women, which I think was about 25% or something like that in the very first census of the senior executive team. But they were much more shocked then when we said, well, let's look at the roles that align roles and CFOs. And as you said, it was, I think it was around 6% of CEOs. It was only 9% of CFOs. And that to me was one of the most shocking statistics since from the early 1990s, when you look at commerce and finance degrees, it's been half women going in at university level. And, you know, here almost 30 years later, or 25 years later, and only 9% of CFOs are women. And I think that was a really big wake up call. Mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the real um, I'm, things I'm really pleased about is that over a couple of years, the percentage of CFOs in the ASX 200 went from 9% women to 16% women, and right. including in very big CFO roles. And I think it was, you know, that real wake up call for the finance um, community, for boards, CEOs, and going, actually, this just doesn't make sense. Mm. And this is an area we can really make a difference because there's a lot of women here. Mm. You're a huge supporter um, or advocate for women staying in executive roles. Yeah, yeah. We'll come to you and I meeting later, but, you know, I, I remember that conversation and, in fact, other people I've spoken to who met you for the first time say there's a, a very consistent theme in your communication, which is if you want to have influence and impact stay in those executive roles, um, that's where it's all happening. Yeah. I might have also said it's also where you get paid a lot more money too. If ah. I didn't say that, Melissa, I should have. But um, I, but, I missed that part of the conversation. <laughs> I, th I think I'm more blunt about that than when I met you, perhaps. Um, but I'm always astonished when I talk, particularly to younger women, 
about what they think the role of the board is. And of course, boards provide a governance oversight role. The people who actually run the organisation and by far the most influential people are the CEO and the executive team. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, actually, if you really want to be a player, that's where you want to be. And you can have enormous influence and make a huge difference. And that doesn't mean board roles aren't important, but they, they're not, you don't have your hands on the levers. Yeah. You're a step back you're influencing rather than actually doing. And so, especially when I talk to people about what they like about their jobs, guess what most people like doing? They like being involved, being part of a team, leading other people, getting things done, um, achieving results. Well, that's much more an executive um, outcome of being an executive than it is of being a board member. Now, being I just see a board member is later in your career. It's not something you shouldn't do, but I'm say, saying to people all the time, it should be late in your career. Don't go try and go there too early for most people. So um, it brings me to um, a conversation where you and I have a, a shared uh, sort of experience, if you like, yeah. um, and, um, and that is being diagnosed with breast cancer mm -hmm. relatively young. Yeah. Um, and I would love to talk to you about that. I think it would be really you know, incredibly beneficial for people to, to understand that. Um, but one thing you said, which kind of fits in with this conversation is you may not have made the choice to, to move to your own board career so early had it not been for that. Is that right? A hundred percent. It was not my expectation or intention at all. Mm -hmm. And um, But when I went through treatment and I had an aggressive form of breast cancer, it just really became evident when I popped out the other side of treatment that I just didn't have the crazy stamina that I used to have. Um, and my executive experience, a bit like yours, involved lot, doing lots of travel into Asia over the last decade or two, um, or the last decade before I got breast cancer and went through treatment. And the thought of doing those overnight flights to and from Asia, it was just, I just knew I could, I literally could not have done it. And it, so therefore, the kind of range of options on the executive front were going to be different to what I would have been expecting. And then non-executive opportunities started to appear as well. And so it was a pragmatic decision to step out of the executive track and go non-executive. But I grieved. I know I told you I grieved for my career as an executive. I loved being an executive. And I certainly went at least five years earlier five to 10 years earlier than ideally I would have. But, you know, that's life and you get on with it. So um, you're involved with um, the Breast Cancer Network Australia. Mm -hmm. um, just, it touches so many people. I just wonder, um, you know, if you're willing to kind of just go back to the point in time when you were diagnosed. And I know you've, you've got a bit of sad family history around breast yeah. cancer as well. Yeah, and um, so very hard, uh, you know, it's very pleased to talk about. It's not that difficult to talk about, but if we go back to the time I was diagnosed, so I was 50, and um, the I my mother had had breast cancer and she didn't die of breast cancer. She actually died of bowel cancer in her 50s. And then I've got two younger sisters and my next sister was diagnosed with breast cancer in her mid-40s. And she'd had to stand down from a CEO role as a result. 
And so oh. that was before you were diagnosed. She was diagnosed before I was diagnosed, a couple oh. of years ahead of me. And um, the thing that still surpri surprises me now, given that I had that family history, so it wasn't like when I was told I had sort of this and I had an aggressive and rare form of breast cancer, it's still looking back on it, it I find it fascinating as the doctor was speaking to me, it was like my brain exploded and I almost couldn't take anything in. And it is just that shock of um, um, knowing that your life has just in that moment completely changed yeah. and I wasn't I don't think I was scared but just almost overwhelmed by it mm -hmm. and um, um, I've, I've never forgotten because I if I think back rationally I think why did I respond at such a so overwhelmed you know I'm an intelligent person in fact the doctor said to me he goes you're very tough and I said I'd rather you'd say I was strong rather than tough but nonetheless I remember actually how my brain exploded and um it is just I think that shock of realizing you're mortal and it's you you've lost control you don't control it you don't control your life for a period of time and um and even though the statistics have improved so much in terms of um, survivability of breast cancer it is still a very big deal to get a diagnosis of breast cancer particularly that initial diagnosis I think yeah. before you before you have a plan yeah um, and I can I can empathise with the control, you know, particularly as you've talked us through, you know, you were very um, uh, deliberate about your career and very focused on giving options and, and driving it. And, and so all of a sudden to have all of that control taken mm. away is a, you know, is a huge change. Yeah. Um, mine was a little bit different in the sense that I was... Um, I'd gone off innocently to a, a mammogram and ultrasound after finding a lump under my armpit. And I don't know, I left a business meeting to go and, um, and I wasn't, was probably meeting with, you know, we've all got favourite and not favourite clients. Yeah. I'm sorry if you're watching this, but uh, it wasn't one of my favourite ones. So it wasn't a great way to end my corporate career. Uh, but off I went and um, I had two ultrasounds, two mammograms, and it was only on the second mammogram that I was twigging that maybe they'd seen something when the radiographer, sort of the, the senior guy came in. And he then said to me, when are you seeing your GP? And I said, oh, I guess when your results are done and all that mm. stuff. And he then said to me, I've just spoken to her and she'll see you at 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. Oh. So oh. That, that was my kind of moment. And I, I just remember leaving and I'd gone on my own because I, mm. I wasn't expecting that. Mm. Um, so I went on my own, Melissa. I think it's a lesson for women who are used to being on top of things and don't really, oh yeah, I'll be able to deal with this. No worries. Yeah. Take a friend, take any, <laughs> take, take, take your partner. Do not go to the doctor on your own. <laughs> um, so, um, did it change you? I think you and I've had part of this conversation before. Yeah, we, we have, we we have come, you know, I love when people used to say to me, did it change you? And I kind of would say it's obviously changed my career. Um, I say in lots of ways it didn't. I knew what was important in life, that life is all about relationships and the like. Um, so I didn't need that big 
wake-up call, which some people talk about it was a wake-up call. It wasn't a wake-up call for me. But Melissa, in hindsight, do I live my life differently as a result? Yes, I do. And I'm going to say I actually think I live my life more joyfully mm. as a result. And that doesn't mean I would wish people to go through a cancer diagnosis and treatment. But I do think you come through the other side and you're much you know, more conscious of, well, what's really important to me and how do I want to spend my time and what do I want to do? And, you know, just choices um, of, well, I'm only going to do things I really care about and that are important to me. And I'm going to, I really want to work with people that I really enjoy working with and being with. And that means I'm much more willing to say no to things that I probably wouldn't have said no to before. It means that if, if it's just not working for me, I move on, whereas previously I would have stuck at things. And, and um, I kind of live with this sense of gratitude, mm. overwhelming gratitude all the time. Mm. And um, so there are some, you know, there's no question there are some blessings from going through an experience like cancer even though I wouldn't sort of suggest anyone has to go through it. You know, there are some real positives. But, and, and I know I'm fortunate that I can look at it like that with gratitude um, about how I live my life more. In, my life is richer in a way as a result of going through that experience. And I do know some, I mean, obviously cancer can have terrible outcomes and terrible outcomes for families. I'm so so aware of that i'm just talking about in my own life what it's meant yeah and and i think that's the point it's a you know it's an incredibly personal journey personal experience um you know and everyone probably does does go through that differently i thank you for for sharing that um i listened to a podcast on a different different subject but moving through to kind of leadership really mm -hmm. Um, I listened to a podcast um, that you did um, a while. Oh, was it a podcast? Yeah, it was a while ago. And it was um, someone asked you um, what you would tell your younger self. And you said not to worry so much. Mm. And it just got me intrigued about mm. what were you worrying about? Oh, I used to worry about everything, Melissa. I was, in lots of ways, I was a classic case of a perfectionist and fear of failure. And therefore, I would think everything had to be perfect and um, worry about if anything didn't go quite right, et cetera, et cetera. And in hindsight, you know, it's very hard because some of that characteristic, having some of those attributes actually drives you along. And so, you, have, you know, I sort of absolutely recognised there were some real positives with that. But there were other elements where clearly I did not have to put myself through the level of anxiety and grief that I did. And in fact, just keep going is, is um, pretty, is pretty wise. When people ask me for advice now, I just say, just keep moving forward. Things will typically work out. I, I would love to know, um, you know, how, um, how comfortable you are kind of with, with yourself as a leader. And I say this in the context of I had a conversation with someone you know well the other day with David Thody, who's the chair yep. of CSIRO. Yep. And as we were talking about leadership, you know, he said just an interesting thing around the number of people that he um, had seen who didn't reach their ultimate leadership potential because they weren't self-aware. They mm. had, hadn't stopped to process who they were being in terms of yeah. how they were showing up. I just wonder 
you know, have you always been aware, self-aware as a leader or is that a journey that you've had to go on? Um, I think I had to, oh, there's no question I had to go on the journey. And I'm going to say partly, Melissa, looking back, I was one of, no, I was a perfectionist and I was academically bright. So I wanted, you know, thought it was a lot about being, um, I don't want to say being the smartest cat in the room, but, you know, that sort of, of being on top of everything and knowing the answers. And of you course, want to be right. pardon? Did you want to be right? Yeah, yeah. And not to be, to put it over other people, but, you know, um, I think I expected that's what leaders needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, I used to have this sort of false idea of what, you needed to have to be um, a leader or, or I assume that the most senior people in organizations were nearly always right mm. um, and of course we hope that but we know it's not always true and uh, so for me it was in fact I had some real strengths but I didn't even understand they were strengths um, in terms of like I really do I love people I enjoy engaging with people I tend to be very purpose-driven and a lot of those things are absolutely key in terms of if you're in a in a role with responsibility and it was sort of often it's like oh no Kathy you don't have to be great on everything um this stuff that you don't particularly value because it's kind of who you are they're really valuable attributes so you know lean into those rather than worrying that you don't have these other things because guess what there's some skills I'm never going to have and um it's much better to say oh I can compensate for those and play to my strengths so that was a really big lesson for me you know and it wasn't a lesson it was ongoing learning that I had to go through like yeah what am I good at and um and accept that I'm not going to be good in all situations at all that there are going to be people who are way better at me in some um, in leadership roles in some circumstances what advice would you give um you know you and i are, are both incredibly lucky to spend some time mentoring some one yeah. executives um you know if you're asked what are the three things people should ask themselves yeah their own leadership what thoughts yeah. in mind oh i immediately say to people what do you really enjoy doing um because as I've got older, I am much more in that mode of encouraging people to play to the str their strengths. So what do you enjoy, which tends to be a strength, and then say, okay, how do we compensate for the things you're not, that you don't really enjoy and maybe not so good at? Because in most cases, there are ways to do that. So a lot of focus on that. I'm going to say, Melissa, a lot of it is just encouraging people, like listening to people and hearing what they're saying and picking out the things they're doing really well and encouraging them and probably helping them do that with other people as well, like the people who report to them and talking through how do you engage with those people. Um, an awful lot of it is just playing it straight and keeping, you know, trying to make the right decisions and, and keep on going. You're very generous with your time and you're a huge supporter, I'm going to say at least of females is my understanding. Mm. I'm sure there's a lot of males in there too. And um, it was interesting to me um, as I was speaking to some other people who were involved in this series, one of the people I'm talking to, I asked them how important mentors have been in their life. And uh, they weren't aware that you and I were, um, were having a conversation either. And your name came up yeah. about, you know, how you had, I think the description was, you know, almost, you know, pick this person up like a mother cat and, um, you know, really really helped kind of 
be a sounding board. Mm -hmm. Did you have good sounding boards in your career? Uh, I did have some sounding boards. Um, actually, I'm very lucky. My I talked about my sister. The, I've got two younger sisters and the sister who went through breast cancer that I mentioned earlier. And as I said, she was in a CEO role. Um, she was CEO of ANZ in New Zealand at the time um, when she got breast cancer. And um, because we both had um, senior executive roles, she's been a brilliant sounding board. And we would often talk to each other. And you can imagine we could be very close and direct with each other. Is it me or is it the situation? Mm -hmm. And so um, that was invaluable. And along the way, there's, I mean, even now, there's just so many women I talk to and, and men, it's not just women, no. women and men that I talk to. When I was younger, I didn't realise that I had mentors, but in hindsight, I did. But Melissa, I am very, very aware. And even when I was younger, I was very aware that I had some really important sponsors. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I spend a lot of time, and I think a lot of us who do, who seniors, saying, actually, having mentors is great. And we should all look to have mentors, but the you really need sponsors. So those are the people who are going to create opportunities for you. And um, I have to say, all the women and men I know who've got to senior roles have had sponsors who've been able, been willing to take a punt on them and create opportunities for them, whether it's to put them into a project role or put them into a role where arguably they're not quite ready, but everyone you know the, the potential is there and so it is just so important to have those people who are going to create those opportunities for you so there's a couple of messages in that one being for senior leaders to to really be active and yeah. be sponsors and to look for those opportunities can you drive it from the other side from um i'm looking for a sponsor how do i you know how do i find them and how do I nurture that so someone will sponsor me? Yeah. Um, and I think the challenge, Melissa, is it needs to be somewhat organic mm -hmm. um, in terms of you. the person who is going to sponsor you is going to have to feel very comfortable doing it because they're basically also putting their own reputation on the line. So it's not, it can't in any way be a transaction or it's just not going to work on the flip side though um and this is particularly important for women it is just so important to let people know what you want to do and so um you know i talked about early on about being open about wanting to get a line role well you know i really encourage people to let just even their boss know what they'd like to do because lo and behold that person might act as a sponsor for you if you just let them know what you want to do mm -hmm. um, and for example saying you know i'd really like to do this do you think there might be any opportunities to um, for me to go on a project role or maybe step out into sort of a role that's a little bit off the beaten path to get broader experience um, I don't think I'd ever ask, would you be my sponsor? But, you know, you kind of go to, well, what could someone help you with? And that they might turn out to be a sponsor for you. Mm. So stay open and be clear about what you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, and I think it's more bit, yeah, it, often you actually have to be, um, speak up and it can be uncomfortable. But if people don't know what you want to do, it's very hard for them to help you. Women don't ask. Women don't want the top jobs. Um, are there elements of truth in those statements? 
Um, in terms of the comment that women don't ask, I think any of us who've been in leadership roles know that women often don't um, ask and um, and I and even though some people say oh, we need to encourage women to ask and I'm going to say yes we should do that. I also think those of us with leadership responsibilities therefore need to think through well we know women don't ask no. so we're going to ask them it's really simple and um, I have that conversation a lot of saying don't assume the woman doesn't want the role let's ask her and um, and I got lots of stories I could share about that but take a bit of time so we won't do that today but you know of reaching out and um, guess what? When when you actually say something, you've got the skills. You can do this. You need. I need you to put your hand up for this role. In some cases, mm -hmm. um, and but I know if I hadn't asked, that the women well might not have done that. Mm. But had, had some spectacular successes. So have I. When I think, you know, it's and and it's an enormous reward to have someone say to you. Um, you kind of encouraged and pushed me and opened my eyes to things that I didn't think I was capable of achieving. Yeah. 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 It's an amazing yeah. reward. Um, okay. So um, have you seen Annabelle Crabbe's misrepresented? Series no, I feel bad. I haven't. I will. I'm going to binge on it. But <laughs> I binged last weekend and, and I just think it's fabulous and you don't need to have seen it. Um, for me to ask this question. Yep. I guess the question is, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we saw um, a bit of a backlash about women on boards. Um, similar time that uh, Julia Gillard uh, was our first prime minister and, um, and we all saw how that finished. Um, what do you think the younger generations, you know, think watching that? Do you think that um has an impact it there, in my mind there is no doubt it had an impact and it was visible being involved in some leadership programs with younger women where they were saying why would we put ourselves in that situation and of course the, the people like me who are older um go that was heartbreaking in a way because we've tried I mean I don't know how you felt Melissa so often I thought oh, I'm not really sure I wanted to do this oh if I'm not going to do it who is going mm -hmm. to do it and put ourselves in a situation where it's been uncomfortable because we knew that we needed women to do things and be the first person to do things um, but so I, I definitely think it had a very negative impact I guess in many ways I feel though and I think even Miss representation with Annabelle is showing that things have changed because people now look at it and say that is completely unacceptable mm -hmm. and a lot of men are saying that is completely unacceptable and if we look around the world the success of whether it's Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand or Angela Merkel in Germany has just put these spectacular role models of women in leadership at a really critical time for society and humanity. And I think there has been a step change in people's awareness and acceptance of the reasonableness of having women in, um, 
in leadership. Not, not everyone agrees, of course, but I do think there has been a change. And Me Too helped enormously. And that doesn't mean there hasn't been a backlash against Me Too. Of course there has been. There, it, you sort of take two steps forward, one step backwards. You hope that's a ratio, not one step forward and two backwards. But, you know, I think we are two forward, one back. And, um, but, you know, I, I do think it's changing. How long are we going to be having this conversation? You know, I dream of a day where we're not having a gender diversity. Yeah. Um, diversity is so broad, but how long are we going to keep having this one for? Oh, well, I, I guess, Melissa, um, none of us would have believed it would have been anywhere near this this length of time, that's for sure. And then, but then I look at how, and, and when I talk about gratitude after being diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, I look at my own life and I was born in 1961. If I'd been born 10 years earlier, there is no way I would have been able to have the life I've had um, in terms of even going to university wouldn't have happened. And so uh, I think we have to recognise in the long scheme of history, it's like a flash that there's been this shift in the opportunities for women and we just have to push really hard that um, we keep making progress and I think we I mean I do think we're making progress no question about it. Um, COVID an opportunity or a backward step? Oh, um, um, oh it's a tragic isn't it but it is when there are great great um, shocks to systems that they really do change and I do think COVID is an example of how the world has changed. A really simple example, here are you and I over doing a Zoom call. That wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago. And guess what? Everyone now knows working flexibly is, uh, is, is absolutely the way of the future. None of us would have guessed that. Um, so there are some really fundamental changes. And um, given the importance of flexibility to women in the workforce, I think we will... I mean, there are downsides and clearly lockdowns for those people with young children at home. It has been a nightmare. But going forward, there's, some, there's definitely upsides as well. Um, two, two final questions. One is from the audience from the last series. Yeah. A group of women in their 50s wondering, uh, you know, they've been displaced potentially through COVID. Um, what does the future look like for them? I don't know. <laughs> oh, Melissa, that's so hard for me to answer because I'm turning 60 next month and I'm really excited <laughs> about the 60 because, um, first of all, um, I'm going to, you know, I know what I really enjoy doing and I actually really enjoy working and so I'll be working and but some of that will be paid and some of it will be not-for-profit work where I don't get paid and um, I'm involved in doing other things that are really important to me. So I'm kind of, I'm in that situation and I've decided I'm branding at the Stella 60s for myself. And, you know, I'm really excited about that. I can imagine how challenging it could be for people who sort of um, are not nearly as in financially stable situation I am. And so I don't want to downplay that um, at all. And um I actually think you have to say, what do I really enjoy doing and where, where might the opportunities be and just go after them. And, and we know that most jobs come through the network of contacts we have and working those really, really hard. And I know if I look back, um, and, I, and I'm in a very fortunate situation, but sometimes it's been when things have felt, oh, I don't know what's, what, what, what am I going to do next that will really be positive that 
but things happen. Mm -hmm. And I think time and time again, when you talk to people who, where there's been redundancies at work, the number of times people say actually new, new opportunities opened up, which I did not expect. And I think, um, and I'm sure you heard that because I'm, I'm sure you've gone through transformation. Absolutely. Um, with, and, and, you know, the surprise of how many people come out well, even though it, it often doesn't feel like that when people are going through it, certainly early on. Be patient, but do the work. Yeah. Um, last question I'm asking everybody um, yeah. is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like and do you yeah. think it needs to change? I'm going to say I actually think what brave feminine leadership looks like and I'm going to talk about women here rather than try and try and broaden it I actually think it's about being extremely authentic as to whom you are and uh, we talked about just I, I mentioned Jacinda Arden and Angela Merkel earlier and how different are they yeah. and yet they are both clearly comfortable in their own skin and they're clearly comfortable who who, in terms of just being themselves, and they're both extraordinarily powerful role models. And um, I think that great example of brave leadership by women, mm. true to yourself, play to your strengths. Catherine, um, extraordinarily generous of you, as always, to, you know, add your voice to the conversation. So I just want to say thank you so much. There was not a moment's hesitation uh, that I saw. Uh, when I asked you to get involved. So um, greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for being part of it. Happy to do it, Melissa, and good on you for doing it. Terrific. I think it's a great series. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.